Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with philosopher Dr. Ido Landau. Dr. Landau grew up and lived most of his life in Israel. He currently teaches philosophy at University of Haifa, where he focuses mostly on the philosophy of meaning of life, existentialism, and ethics. Dr. Landau also has worked for many years with the terminally ill cancer patients under the auspices of the Israel Cancer Association. He is the author of Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World. Ido, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. Wow. So finding meaning in an imperfect world. What an amazing read. I really enjoyed uh, reading your book. I know it's a thank few you. years old now, but I discovered it. And honestly, I, th- I read it twice and just each wow. time just absorbed so much information. I think I could read it 10 more times and still get a lot out of the book. So congratulations on that. And thank you for just writing a brilliant piece of work. Thank you so much for that. I'm very glad that you liked the book. So I know when we originally set up this interview, you were asking me, well, I'm a philosopher and how is this going to relate to a psychology podcast? And I was explaining to you that in my clinical practice, these issues, these existential issues of meaning of life and purpose, they come up all the time. It's not necessarily like, you know, Dr. Kaplan, what's the meaning of life? But they come up in one way or another. And I just found that talking with a philosopher about some of these reasons why people have a hard time finding meaning would be a very meaningful uh, podcast episode. So that's why we're here. And I'm really happy to have you on the show for that. To start with, we'll delve deeply into this topic, but I'd like to get to know you a little bit as a person first, briefly, just to understand who you are as a person, how you became a philosopher, and importantly, how you became interested on these issues of existentialism and meaning, like how that came about for you. So uh, I think that uh, the beginning was in high school when one of my teachers, a history teacher, talked a lot from time to time uh, about uh, philosophical issues. And that made me very interested in questions uh, such as, uh, well, uh, do we have free will? And what is justice? And what is morality? And also, is life meaningful? And uh, how could uh, life become more meaningful? And uh, this led me when uh, I went to college, to university, to um, focus on philosophy. And with time, uh, my interests grew even stronger. And finally, I became a philosopher. You know, I'm just kind of curious because you grew up in Israel sort of in the 1950s, shortly after World War II. I'm just curious whether what had happened during World War II and the Holocaust and all of that, like that must have been affecting the way people in Israel were thinking about these issues of uh, these existential issues about meaning. I'm just wondering if that had any anything to do with your interest in the area. Very much so. Most of the grown-ups in my neighborhood and some family members as well were Holocaust survivors, and some of them had uh, very difficult stories. And I was very impressed as a child and then as a teenager by the fact that although they went through terrible, terrible things and many of them lost um, their families completely, I saw how many of them succeeded in continuing to have a meaningful life and a happy life as well. And that impressed me very much and led me to think a lot about good and evil and also about the ability of people, even in extremely hard circumstances, to heal themselves and to grow and to mend wounds and continue to live well. That made a very strong impression on me. Yeah, I'm sure. In your book, you talk a lot about, in the beginning, especially the early chapters, this concept of value. And I get the sense that understanding value and what value means plays a very important role in the concept of finding meaning in one's life. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what value is exactly and and how one evaluates that and assesses the meaning of that for oneself. 
So uh, I think that value uh, has both uh, objective and subjective aspects. And uh, it is very important that we'll ask ourselves which uh, aspects of the objective value we connect with. Different people have different ways uh, of uh, linking with different aspects of objective value, just as um, different people need different medications for different illnesses or um, different people are sensitive to some types of beauty and not to others or to sometimes of art and not to others. The value is uh, the thing that we find of worth or importance, the things that we look up to and the things that we have that we would like to have more of in our lives. And these are things that we not only desire, which sometimes can be not valuable, but that we also respect, that we look at as having positive worth to it. One thing that you talked about was that actually meaning can also exist on a, on a continuum. Um, it's not a present or absent thing. What is meant by that? Unfortunately, many people who feel that their lives are not meaningful have a very binary black and white, um, all or nothing view about meaning of life. They think that lives are either fully meaningful or that they're completely empty of meaningfulness. And that is probably untrue. In many other aspects of value, we see that there is a continuum. Things are not absolutely beautiful or absolutely ugly. People are not absolutely rich or absolutely uh, desolate uh, financially things are not completely interesting or completely dull. There's a continuum. And since uh, meaning of life is based on value, uh, we have good reasons to believe that this is also true of meaning in life. I think it's important to remember, because once we understand that even if we feel or think that our lives are not meaningful, it may be that they, they do not have zero meaningfulness, but they have quite a lot of meaning, meaningfulness perhaps, but maybe not enough. Maybe it didn't pass the threshold. We can build on the uh, meaningfulness that we do have in life and uh, just uh, enhance it so it would uh, pass the threshold. We already have some. We don't have to begin from scratch. And we can also learn from the uh, meaningfulness that we do have, that we're happy with, what works for us, what we do take to be meaningful. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about that with a black and white way of looking at all or nothing way, because in a psychotherapy practice, it's not uncommon for people to have very rigid ways of thinking and experiencing things as, and as a psychotherapist, we're often working to try to like break the rigidity of patterns of thinking of things as all or nothing. So it's interesting to talk about that with meaning on a meaningfulness on a continuum, because it's sort of consistent with that kind of idea. Very interesting. I didn't know that this is very common in psychotherapy. Yeah. And, and similarly, as well as the continuum part, you mentioned that meaning could shift for a person over time, right? Yes. I think this is also a, a, something that some people miss. Uh, some people think that if you have meaning in life, then you focus on one thing and you focus on it for your whole life or I know since you're 20 until until you pass away and if you change it from time to time then something is wrong then your life is not meaningful and that is probably not correct uh, as uh, again we can see from other spheres of value we know that people can um, enjoy various types of art and people uh, can also find uh, value and meaning both in art and, I don't know, in family life and philanthropic work. And uh, it is, I think, very important to see that things can change. Sometimes we have very good friends and maybe a terrible thing happened and they passed away or maybe it just cooled down and we have new friends or maybe we're very interested in one thing and then we become interested in another thing. The fact that we're now interested in another thing does not show that we're not really interested in the previous things or that the earlier friendships were not good. No, they were also good and now we have new ones. I think it is 
perfectly plausible for a person, I don't know, if, if, to give some kind of a schematic uh, example, a person might be interested in doing philanthropic uh, work in a third world country from the age, I don't know, from 20 to 35, and then raising um, hopefully uh, decent and uh, happy children from 35 to 55, and then maybe writing uh, good literature from uh, 55, I know, to 65, and then uh, just to, to continue this example, maybe meditate in a monastery for the rest of their lives, and this would be a meaningful life. So it is perfectly okay to change from one sphere to another. Maybe it's also good because things become fresh and sometimes we exhaust a certain sphere of meaning or source of meaning in our life. I like the way that you describe that, Ido. It makes a lot of sense that people can do one thing at one time in their life and have meaning from it and then shift to something else, but it doesn't invalidate the previous meaning. It just, you're just moving on to something else. And that's part of the flexibility of life, I guess. So I really like that way of looking at it. You know, you talk about, there's several arguments that you go through and you write like a philosopher. So it's very fascinating (laughs) to see how you take an argument and you deconstruct it and discuss why it's not really valid from a philosophical point of view. And I want to talk about some of them because they are actually the kinds of things that we hear in a psychotherapy practice, believe it or not. They may not be worded quite like a philosophical statement, but the issues themselves come up. And so I think it would be worthwhile to take a look at some of them. One of them you call, you talk about the idea of perfectionism. And like, if I were thinking about meaning or lack of meaning from that point of view, I might say something like, hey, I don't have any extraordinary talents. I'm not doing accomplishing great things in my life. I'm not standing out as an example of, you know, a celebrity or some, I'm just not like fulfilling that. So what's the point of life if I can't be this great remembered person for my, you know, for doing these great things? Like, how would you argue against that from a philosophical point of view? Well, I think that uh, various considerations uh, suggest that this perfectionist attitude is problematic. And I have to say that many people with whom I talked uh, uh, about their life's meaning and told me that they feel that their lives are not meaningful or not meaningful enough, actually expressed this perfectionist sentiment. They thought that if they're not as great as, I don't know, Shakespeare or Einstein or... uh, I know, Churchill or Nietzsche or Freud, then their lives are meaningless. There are those uh, celebrities, so to say, or eminent people. And then all the rest, (laughs) Ah, we (laughs) are all, I know, the riffraff. The, 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 (laughs) well, not really, we don't have meaningful lives just because we're not that important. I think that uh, various arguments uh, can be presented, considerations can be presented against this perfectionist sentiment. One of them has to do with uh, consistency. Most of us, most of the time, do not accept perfectionist arguments. We do not think that if we're not uh, as rich as, I don't know, Bill Gates or whoever, Jeff Bezos, then Mm -hmm. we are downtrodden poor. And we don't think that if uh, we don't live in the most beautiful city in the world, our city must be repulsive and not worth living in, or that uh, we're stupid if we're not Einstein. We can be not Einstein, but clever enough, or that we're villains if we're not Mother Teresa. But then when it comes to meaning in life, inconsistently, these people who reject perfectionism in all other spheres of life sometimes accept it when when it comes to life's meaning. And uh, so under pain of inconsistency, maybe if we reject with good reasons perfectionism in other spheres of life, so we should do also when it comes to meaning in life. And a second consideration also has a bit to do with consistency. This is now the inconsistency between our attitude to dear ones, or even people who are not dear ones, who are also not Einsteins or Freuds or whoever. And we don't think that their lives are meaningless. We think that their lives are quite important and meaningful. And if something bad 
happens to them. Even people we don't know, maybe a child that we read about in the paper. Well, just like us, he too or she too is not Einstein or Shakespeare or Rembrandt. But when we hear that something bad happened to them, we're very sorry about that. And we think that something very valuable was harmed. But if that is true of them, then it is probably also true of us. If their lives are meaningful, even if they're not Shakespeare, then maybe our lives are meaningful, even if we too are not Shakespeare. It is interesting that sometimes when we talk about discrimination, usually when we talk about discrimination, especially in political contexts, we think of discrimination as cases in which we treat ourselves more leniently or we look at ourselves as better than other people. We have double standards and the standard for us is a better standard for other people. But it is interesting to see that when we come to meaning in life, it is very common for us to discriminate against ourselves. Mm. What we allow other people, for example, we think that they have meaningful lives, even if they are not Einstein's, we do not allow ourselves. So that is another argument from uh, inconsistency. And a third uh, consideration is a consideration from um, implausibility. Usually we refrain from criticism based on implausible expectations. When someone admires a certain dog, we do not point out in response that the dog cannot drive. (laughs) Why? Because it is implausible to expect a dog to drive. And we do not disapprove of chairs because we cannot uh, make a nice cup of tea with with a chair. And uh, (laughs) we do not criticize kettles because it is uh, inconvenient to sit on them. Mm -hmm. But it is so strange to criticize ourselves and other people for not being um, those personalities there might be 10 or 50 or maybe 100 Einsteins or Rembrandts, maybe less than that, in the whole uh, history of humanity. And, and yes, we're not one of them. So maybe these, uh, these uh, uh, standards are simply implausible. And if they're implausible, maybe we should uh, reject them. Another consideration has to do with simple cruelty. I think that often holding perfectionist standards when evaluating the meaning of our lives is cruel. Now, it sounds weird to say that about people who are sometimes very kind, they just feel that their lives are meaningless. But I think we should remember that cruelty is frequently object-specific. One can be cruel to one's children, but not to one's employees and vice versa, or to one child, but not to another. And I think that by the same token, many people who see their lives as meaningless are compassionate towards other people, but cruel to themselves. And we could identify this cruelty if we heard them talking to others in the way that they talk to themselves. If they talk to other in such a, other people in such a way, if they said things, uh, well, you're not wise as Aristotle, hence you're an idiot and I despise yeah. you, or you're not talented as Mozart, you're just one big zero, you don't write yeah. like Shakespeare, you're rubbish. If we heard them talking like that, we'd say, oh, this is a very, very way, a very cruel way to speak with people. But uh, what is forbidden in the general social world, for some reason, is accepted in the private self-talk. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that cruelty is bad or terrible always and uh, we shouldn't talk like that to people and we too are people again we see here a kind of well discrimination against ourselves in the sense that we allow things to happen to ourselves that we would not morally allow to happen to other people sure and when when we when we assign perfectionistic uh, needs for for meaning that we're really holding our own standards for ourselves to this high standard that's just going to be impossible to reach for most people. And so by expecting oneself to reach that standard and not being able to do it and telling oneself and beating up on on oneself because of that is pretty cruel. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I think so. I think that um, another consideration against perfectionism is that often it is based on narcissism. And again, 
it may sound wrong or odd to say that because um, people who think that their lives are meaningless often despise themselves or have very bad feelings uh, towards themselves. So how would that be narcissistic? But I think that rejecting oneself because one is not Einstein can in fact issue from great conceit. The process that leads to this self-loathing has to do with adoption of very high or even impossible standards for oneself. And this is frequently done in conjunction with an attitude that those others, the riffraff or the hoi polloi, may continue with (laughs) their inferior standards, but uh, if they so wish. But I endorse mine. For me, it's uh, either Shakespeare or nothing. Yeah, And that has to do, I think, often with smugness. I think that some people who feel that their lives are meaningless are simply very sorry that uh, they're, not, they're not Shakespeare's or Einstein's or Freud's. And that might be a bit narcissistic. In your book, you talk about this idea of annihilation and death and how yeah. this concept, and I, I, I can get this, like, we all know that we are mortal and we're going to die someday and we won't, we'll cease to exist. And I suppose even 4 billion years from now, the sun will expand and gobble up the earth and then the earth will be gone. So even if we're buried in a nice plot in Haifa, that's going to be gone. (laughs) How do you, how do you address that concept of like, well, you know, it's all going to end someday and I'm going to be gone. So what's the point? I think that death and annihilation do diminish the meaning of life a bit. And uh, if things were different, it might have been better. Though I should say that not all people would have liked to live forever Mm. or to exist forever. When they're faced with this option, some people say that they would prefer not to continue on and on. I think that here too, uh, the sentiment that says that because we will die and uh, be annihilated uh, one day and so be forgotten. Life is completely meaningless, is again perfectionist. Mm. Even if it would be better, and I'm not sure sure it would be better, but even if it would be better to live forever, this does not mean that living for some time, several decades, um, living well for some time is, uh, is worthless or that it is not meaningful that the fact that our lives have been of worth at a certain point of time, this has an eternal status. Mm. Uh, It will always be true that you had a close, trustful and blissful moment with a family member or that you felt some exhilaration while reading a, a poem or that you were a decent person or that you had a meaningful life. Even if when we are gone and forgotten, The fact will continue to ever. But the important thing, I think, is even if finitude diminishes value, it does not remove it completely. And uh, we can uh, see that the fact that for some time things were meaningful for us, we had a good, meaningful life, is very important. It is very valuable. Mm-hmm. Not everything has to continue forever in order to be sufficiently valuable. I wonder if an argument can be made that knowing that time is finite could actually create some sense of meaning because you're not taking time for granted, that you are recognizing the importance of the time that you have and trying to be as focused and aware of how to derive meaningfulness from it because it's finite. I think that uh, this is a a very fruitful uh, direction. I think that for many people, if life went uh, on and on, then perhaps uh, life would have been less meaningful because they they might have felt that whatever they wanted to do, which is valuable, they could always do some other day. Now that we're given a limited supply of something, then we have the feeling that we have to to, uh, use it well, Mm -hmm. that we shouldn't waste it. 
There is a saying that, uh, that I mentioned in the book, this is not the dress rehearsal. Yeah. Uh, this is the thing in itself. We have one, one and only one chance to live. And uh, we should uh, try not to waste this. And it is easy to waste it and always prepare for something else or just not to do anything without it. The fact that we know that we have a limited time, just as you said, I think, can make or help us have a more meaningful life. Yeah, you know, I can't think of anything offhand, but I know that there's been a lot of movies that I've watched in the past, maybe some about vampires who are immortal and live forever, of course, they can only come out at nighttime, so that doesn't sound like too much fun. Uh, or other kinds of science fiction themes having to do with immortality. And I, I think a lot of times in those kinds of films, the issue or topic that's often wrestled with is sort of like meaninglessness. Like I'm getting up and I'm doing the same thing day after day after day, and there's no end in sight. And so they often end up just finding ways to amuse or entertain themselves that's sort of meaningless, but they can't think of anything else to do. And that's often like becomes sort of like the theme of the movie in a way, the characters struggle right. or conflict. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. yeah, well, similar to the death and annihilation, these are very uplifting, you know, I have to say, uh, um, I'm just joking. Um, we get into the <laughs> we get into the context of the whole universe. Um, this idea, and, and I hear this sometimes, like, hey, the cosmos are so huge, and I'm just a speck of in irrelevant nothingness in the greater cosmos. So why does my life have any meaning? And especially as like we're becoming more aware of cosmology and we have the tools to look out into the universe, like really like it, and I know you've probably done this sort of pondering, like the the minute size of us in the grand scheme of the universe is sort of overwhelming and helps makes you feel kind of like you're nothing. Right, right. Uh, I think that there are several possible replies to, to this worry that uh, I, I too am familiar with. One is that if the um, universe is empty, we, we're not sure that it's empty, but if it's mostly made of dead matter, then um, actually we're very significant. We're very meaningful mm. because we are in the whole huge well nothingness or i don't know just that matter we are intelligent beings that can do good things and can have aesthetic experiences and can feel warmth and friendship and and do intellectual work so we're very very meaningful yeah that's a great uh, because point. There's nothing else there. Another question is whether we would really be that interested in um, in impacting all the universe. Uh, I, for one, do not feel any um, any difficulty with the fact that I don't influence some I don't know hill of sand on on. Uh, planet uh, Pluto, or not to say much more distant stars in other galaxies. Maybe a thought experiment can help here. Let's uh, assume as a thought experiment that the world or the solar system, Earth or the solar system, became a hundred times bigger while the rest of the cosmos remained as it is. Would we feel that our lives are more meaningful? I, I don't think so. Or let's mm. say that the whole of the universe... I don't know, 90% of the universe vanished for some reason, uh, but uh, or 95, uh, but the solar system remained. Would then our lives become more meaningful? I don't think that they would. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to return to perfectionism, which is at the basis of so many questions and thoughts and feelings that life is meaningless. Maybe if we influenced, we could influence the whole cosmos, our lives would have been more meaningful. I just suggested that maybe not, but maybe they would be. This does not mean that being a good friend and uh, helping some, uh, some people in the neighborhood and uh, enjoying uh, poetry or enjoying a good film is not meaningful enough. Mm -hmm. Again, we should ask ourselves whether we're not thinking ourselves here, not only as Einstein or, or Freud, but as God, since we're not God, I mean, in, in Western tradition, only God influences the whole cosmos. Yes. And saying that, oh, because we're not God, our lives are not, are, are not meaningful, 
that may may have maybe endorsing too ambitious norms. Sure. So there's really nothing to say that having a meaningful impact on one person is any worse than having a meaningful impact on planet Xenon 41 light years from here. It's just helping somebody and being there and finding meaning for it that's important regardless of the quantity of people who are being helped. So to think that quantity is almost utilitarian in a way, like the more of something makes it more significant, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case for meaning. I perfectly agree. Yes, yes. I think it's also interesting to ask why some people are so interested in impacting or affecting all sorts of things. I'm now in Haifa and you're in Hawaii. And I think that there's someone in Hawaii now eating maybe supper and I am not influencing them now. Right. So, so I'm not, I, I, I don't feel this urge to influence everyone. I don't even feel the urge to influence my neighbors. If they have a good life, that's great. Then, then why should I intervene? If there is some suffering, I would be happy if the suffering would cease, would stop. But I want the suffering to stop. Not, that, not necessarily that I will be the one who stops it. Um, so I don't think that there, there, we should have this or that we need have this urge to, to influence distant stars or whatever. Yeah. So I want to move on to another one. And we, you know, we could probably spend hours talking about this one. So let's just see if we can touch upon it because it's huge. It's this idea of relativism. And, you know, you, you sometimes hear nihilistic people talking about this, it's sort of this idea like, you know, well, either I have to accept that there's like an objective truth or not. And if there's no objective truth, then sort of what's the point of everything? Like I get to make up what's true and what's meaningful. And so if I'm just making it up, then how does it have any objective meaning to it? Like it's all relative. So who cares what I do? Actually, I could go out and start murdering people and it doesn't matter because it's all relative and you know that's sort of relativism and and it, it can kind of descend into the absurd when we talk about it but how do we put that in perspective in terms of just understanding like meaning well th- there's a lot of literature on objective meaning and subjective meaning i think that the case uh, for objective meaning is also strong so one reply to subjectivism or relativism about life's meaning is to say that Actually, we probably can also identify objective meaning, but let's uh, let's say that we cannot. I'm not sure that everything is lost. We can see, I think, a lot of value also in subjective meaning. Let's assume that that there is only subjective meaning. So um, we can think of some things that have subjective meaning, which can make life meaningful. Many of our friendships uh, or maybe our loves have a strong subjective element to them. I uh, love my children, for example, not because I um, surveyed all the children in the neighborhood and uh, found objectively who's, I know, the nicest or the cleverest, but (laughs) just because of this arbitrary fact that they're my children. And uh, I have some uh, pictures from uh, my childhood and also some... um, uh, things that used to belong to my parents, and they are very valuable for me. They have sentimental value, and it's real value. It makes my life meaningful in in some ways, and uh, this is also subjective. And in general, maybe we can uh, treat uh, meaningfulness uh, according to subjective paradigm. So um, the sensation of meaningfulness, maybe the the realization of meaningfulness without thinking about objective meaningfulness, as we sometimes treat, for example, interest or or maybe taste, even gastronomic taste. So some things uh, are pleasant for us to taste and some things are bitter or unpleasant. And we try to taste the pleasant ones and this is what we should do, and that's the right thing to do. And maybe that should be also true of what makes our lives um, be filled with sensed meaningfulness. Yeah, I know I get into the argument with my wife all the time about whether mushrooms are enjoyable to eat or not, and she loves them, and I can't stand them. 
but there's no right or wrong answer to whether or not either of us find value and meaning in eating mushrooms. And I know in my clinical practice, you know, like when this comes up, like I oftentimes with my patients, when we have this kind of conversation, I try to help them find and define for themselves what their own meaning is that rather than trying to apply like an objective thing there, we, we talk about like, well, what, what would bring you meaning? Let's figure out what subjectively, what that is for you. It doesn't have to be what it is for anybody else. And that seems to often be helpful. So I think that's sort of along the lines of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I didn't know that this is what is done often in in psychotherapy. Yeah. Well, I told you there's a lot of overlap with your subject matter. Yeah. I now see that. Very very important. Um, A a few more here. Um, If I don't have a concrete goal in my life, how can I, my life have any meaning? Like I, I should be having something I'm working toward like a big finale, something that I can say, Hey, this is my, you know, my grand opus here. I know that many people have this feeling and um, just as I think that we can change the sources of uh, meaning and value in our lives and that we can have many of them and um, we don't have to have only one, uh, even at a certain time and certainly not all through life. This, uh, I think, is also true of uh, the goal of life. Generally speaking, I think we can um, or we should remember that uh, value theory in philosophy distinguishes between instrumental value and terminal or intrinsic value. So some things have value as instruments. For example, the fridge in, in my house has only instrumental value. It, I keep it only because it keeps the food fresh. And if there were another way of keeping the food fresh, I wouldn't keep the fridge. Mm-hmm. But uh, happiness or meaningfulness or having a happy life or having a meaningful life This is not instrumental for other things. This is uh, what is called in value theory, intrinsic value or final value. And um, I think that uh, we can see the the goal of life if we really need a goal to which we are or our life is an instrument to, we can see it as having a meaningful life or a fulfilled life or a happy life. It's also okay uh, I guess, for people to find such a goal to which their lives would be instrument. I know maybe a moral goal, a social goal, but um, I think we can also treat our lives themselves as a goal or the meaningfulness or the happiness, the well-being of our lives as a goal and uh, and go with that. Yeah, what you were talking about before is what you refer to in your book as the paradox of the end, I think, like when... Right somebody actually does have this major goal that they're working toward and they attain it. And then they can be like, well, now what? Like my life just lost all of its meaning because I had this one thing and I accomplished it and that's it. Yeah. Many people uh, uh, come and tell me that they feel that life is meaningless because they try very hard to achieve something. And then when they achieved it, they uh, they feel empty again. So what was the use of trying to achieve that thing? And then not only the achievement, but even the road to the achievement, the, the effort becomes meaningless. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that this is true of some cases, but not all. I think that many goals do not uh, become trivial or uh, uninteresting or unworthy once uh, we achieve them. Many people... Um, continue to feel uh, the value of of achievements such as raising children who are decent and happy or or having satisfying personal encounters with other people or uh, succeeding um, to do something moral and, and, and help other people. I think that there are many differences between people. Some people are more uh, vulnerable to this, what might be called the paradox of the end than other people. And it doesn't have to do with any metaphysical necessity, but mostly with maybe a kind of a psychological tendency or a psychological makeup. Sometimes I think it has to do with education that uh, pressed us, usually with very good intentions, uh, not to be sufficiently happy with with, uh, our achievements. Mm. 
maybe uh, maybe some of our educators parents or teachers uh, fear that we'll be too happy or too content and we will not continue to try hard and achieve more things and um, some people are uh, are also educated to be very diligent and industrious and that's very good in many ways but uh, some people can be uh, educated too well for that and then they feel restless they achieve something and and then the the voices from their childhood will continue to get another thing that's not good enough yet yeah try to achieve more continue to pester them and for this reason sometimes they are not happy with what they achieved and they cannot sit and enjoy it to, yeah. to the end. Yeah, I think that that's very common to see people have internalized messages, mostly in their childhood, that nothing is really quite good enough. And so any achievement is just not adequate. It's it's what's the next thing after this, because this in and of itself is just, it's just not good enough. And what I hear you talking about when you're discussing this it's another concept in psychotherapy that comes up a lot. It's this idea of like focusing more on the process of how you're getting from one point, from point A to point B, rather than the product of getting to point B, because the value is really in, in the process. It's in the journey. The, huh. the, the destination doesn't really feel that meaningful if you don't have a journey to get there. So then the journey itself is what's important, I think. And Very I, interesting. Yeah, I think that's sort of what, what we're talking about here with this idea of just focusing on the destination or fulfilling that goal. Human evil, Ido, how can anything, yeah. how can the world and the universe have meaning with Hitlers and Nazis running around or Pol Pots or yeah. Rwanda genocides? Like, this isn't a world that I want to live in. Like it's just meaningless when you see this kind of absolute horribleness and evilness of humanity and let alone tsunamis that kill 300,000 people who are unsuspecting. Yes. How do we even talk about meaning in light of that? Yes. I, I think that this is a, a big problem, but um, uh, there are a few things that we should remember. One of them, I think, is that there is also a lot of good in the world. Uh, I think that it is also good to remember that the main source of knowledge that we have about the world, which is the newspapers, is biased. Uh, newspapers write much more about negative events than about positive ones. They emphasize the bad and not the good. Yeah increases in unemployment receive bigger headlines and and the front pages and decreases in unemployment uh, do not yeah uh, the paper does not record 50 cases in which someone helped an old person to cross the street <laughs> right. but does record the one case in which the so to say helper ran away with the senior citizen's yeah. money so we should remember that also, that there is a, a bias in the newspapers here, not a political bias, you know, to left or right, or, uh, but in almost all newspapers towards the evil. Yeah. But I think that we should also remember that uh, in general, that yes, uh, we should not deny it, the world is terrible. And we should also not deny the fact that the world is wonderful. Both, both statements are true. Yeah. And uh, the world includes evil, injustice, pain, and cruelty, and frustration, but also beauty, and kindness, and friendship, and dedication, and courage, inspiration, and human closeness, and warmth, and justice, and generosity. And um, we will be hurt by the evil parts often, and uh, we, we can gain much and add to the, the good parts of the world. And uh, I think it's true that some people completely ignore the evil and painful aspects of reality, pretending to themselves that they do not exist. And this is not good. I think we should be aware of them. But uh, many others, I think, make a similar mistake by, by ignoring all the positive aspects of reality or the possibility of enhancing uh, the positive aspects uh, of reality. And just as we try to further ourselves away from people who are unpleasant, we do not try to befriend them and we try to befriend 
nice people. Generally speaking, I think we should uh, acknowledge the fact that there are some very terrible things happening. There is uh, a terrible aspect of the world and try to enhance and connect with, with uh, those, those aspects of the world which are uh, good and wonderful and, and they're very valuable and we can gain very much from them. I think that's very, very important advice and that people have a choice in where and how they focus their energy and their attention. And you're right, like given, well, I don't know what the news is like in Israel, but you're obviously familiar with the U.S. media and Mm -hmm. you were right. It's a it's a consumerist commercial media circus in the U.S. And I think, you know, the mainstream media is all about getting people to watch and they tend to watch Mm. sensationalized stuff because that holds people's attention. Uh, But that is only one side of the story, right? It kind of Mm. like what we were talking about earlier, this idea of like black and white thinking about how one sees the world. That's also can be the case with seeing the world as totally evil or totally good. There's lots of shades of gray in there. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I perfectly agree. Yes. I want to touch on one more thing mm-hmm. before we move on to the next part that I want to talk with you about. This is this idea of psychological egoism. And that stuck out when I was reading your book, because that does come up from time to time. It's sort of an odd thing. And the way I understand it is this idea that some people sort of undermine their altruism and generosity by convincing themselves that at the end of the day, I'm only doing it for me, like if I'm generous to somebody or I'm altruistic, it makes me feel good. So I'm not really doing it for somebody else. I'm doing it for me. So kind of what's the point? It's all selfish. And I just wonder if you'd say a few words about that, because that's sort of fascinating. I think that a few things might be said here. One of them is that even if we would accept this uh, egoistic urge, and say that it uh, and accept that it is present in everything. It doesn't mean that things are that bad because wanting to feel good <laughs> with uh, with oneself is not such a terrible thing. <laughs> it's a good thing, uh, I think. Uh, but I'm also not sure that we have a good argument that would show that the only or ultimate motivation in our actions is this uh, egoistic urge. I think we can accept that uh, an egoistic urge, perhaps, I'm not even sure of that, is also present in everything we do without accepting that it is the only or ultimate uh, motivating force behind our activities. Mm -hmm. There may well be also other basic and ultimate urges or motivations beside it, and some of them are worthy and some are unworthy. And uh, one reason to think that uh, the latter suggestion is the correct one is that even if all people have this egoistic urge, we see that uh, some people find egoistic satisfaction in, uh, I don't know, sadistic murders, and other people find egoistic satisfaction in saving lives or painting pictures or reading poems. So the difference is probably, probably has to do with the fact that except of this egoistic urge, we have also urges for good or beauty or for bad and ugliness. And uh, they are also very important. And uh, we should, uh, I think, congratulate ourselves when uh, we're motivated by the good ones. There is no uh, reason to think that the good or bad urges are all um, reducible only to the selfish ones. They are also there. We can also think about it, I think, that way. Let, let us assume for a second that what I just said is, is incorrect. And the ultimate motivation is only an egoistic one. The fact that some people satisfy this egoistic urge by doing worthy acti- activities can be seen as making their lives meaningful. So we can think of Mother Teresa and, I don't know, uh, Jennings Khan. Yes, both of them, according to this theory, which I think is not uh, strong enough, were moved ultimately, let us accept for for now, um, let us grant, by egoistic um, uh, urges 
to feel good with themselves. The fact that Mother Teresa felt good with herself when she saved people's lives and Jennings Khan felt good with himself when he murdered people is a big, important difference. This is yeah. what makes her a good person and him a bad person. Yeah. She had a meaningful life and he didn't. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it, and at the end of the day, the behavior, the act of one's doing is ultimately can bring meaning, even if for oneself that there's some personal satisfaction in it. And I'm thinking about just like, like a kiss, right? Like people don't usually kiss somebody because it's unpleasant for them to give the kiss. It's usually pleasant, but they're also usually interested in how the kiss is affecting the other person. There's, there's multiple things going on there that's making it a enjoyable and meaningful thing, not just one. And uh, I, I really like looking at it that way. It's just, again, another way of looking at meaning as more, more flexible and nuanced yeah. and gray than just sort of a black and white yeah, this is very instructive. I think the, the, the kiss example is very helpful. I think. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about increasing meaning in one's life. You talk a little bit about that in the latter chapters of your book. And there are some ways in which people, if they wanted to look at meaning and increase that for themselves, uh, that are, are helpful ways to go about that. Like one or in, in some of the work that you've done in examining this, what do you find are ways that are helpful for people? Well, I think that uh, people can gain very much if they try to increase meaning in their lives. Some people say my life is not meaningful and then do, then do nothing. And it's odd because if the faucet is not working, they try to fix it. Yeah. And this is also what we should do with, with life's meaning. And uh, to know what to do, I think that there are various questions that we can ask ourselves. One of them is uh, just asking the plain question, what would make my life more valuable or meaningful? This is a simple, straightforward question to ask. Yeah. And for some, the reply to this question is enough. And another question we might ask ourselves is what elements in, in my life uh, do I already take to be meaningful? And uh, increasing the degree of elements uh, that I already take to be meaningful often will increase meaning. It will help me identify what is already meaningful and what is helpful for me. And a third question, I think also very important, is to ask ourselves what should be removed from my life in order to make it more meaningful. And this question focuses on negative value. And it is important because I think that many things that are not working well in people's lives have to do with what we need to stop doing, not, not only with the things that we have to start yeah, doing or sure. do more, as in health or in love, an important part of what we need to do to improve does not involve uh, adopting new behaviors, but refraining from old ones or at least moderating them. And the fourth question I think that can be helpful is to ask ourselves what characteristics of other people's lives lead us to consider their lives as meaningful lives? Or what do we respect and appreciate in other people's lives? In my case, for example, when I felt my, that my life is not sufficiently meaningful, I asked myself, well, whose lives do I take to be really, really highly meaningful? Mm -hmm. And I'm a philosopher, so the names that came up first were names of philosophers like Aristotle or Plato or Immanuel Kant. But then it occurred to me that the people whose lives I take to be really meaningful, very meaningful, are people like, I know, Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer and people like that. And then I understood that maybe in order to make my life more meaningful, I should follow the latter example, I should try to do some philanthropic work. And I took a course that uh, taught me, instructed me how to um, accompany terminally sick cancer patients to their deaths. And, and I helped them. And that made a huge difference for me. And then I think uh, another helpful question is to talk, uh, well, to ask what worked for others and ask other people. And then there is the deathbed question. Suppose that I were on my deathbed and uh, I had the presence of mind and time to look back on my life, what would I be happy or sorry to have done or not to have done? 
And uh, I can think of this question as relating to my life in general, and, uh, but also to relating to limited units of time. Um, if I'm thinking about spending the next hour or week or year in a certain way, it might be interesting for me to, th- to ask myself what on my deathbed would I think about this week or hour or, or year. Yeah. These things also help people, I think, to identify what might make their lives more meaningful. Yeah. You know, that also comes up quite a bit in psychotherapy when people are talking oh. about meaning this. I, and what I often do with patients is have them take a look and say like, okay, you're 45 years old right now. Let's imagine mm-hmm. 30 years passes and you're now 75 years old. What do you think if you were to look back with regret that's sort of a variation on the theme of the deathbed, right? Because regret <laughs> is always a sad thing to see in psychotherapy. If you were to look back in your life or regret because you didn't accomplish this thing or do this thing that was important to you, and again, not necessarily goal-oriented, but the journey of doing it, what would that be? And that is often a very, very helpful way for a person yeah. to develop some insight. So I think that is a really important thing to reflect upon. Yeah. Again, it's so interesting to see the, the commonalities between psychology, psychotherapy, and philosophy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you talked a bit about Mother Teresa, and you've talked a bit about helping others and doing things that reduce the suffering from others and making help making life better for them. That's often things that come up that help people develop a sense of meaning. And I understand that. You also talked about something, though, in your writing that I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about that I thought was pretty fascinating. And this is idea, you call it the Strickland model. It's based on, it was on some novel, you can remind, you can remind us, but it's this idea that like, when people are feeling this lack of meaning in life, of just dropping everything and radically changing everything, mm-hmm. and that's the way to find the meaning. And we see this in movies too, right? The, the person right. who lived in the yeah. corporate job and had the, had the husband and decided like, okay, this isn't what I want to do. So I'm going to sell everything and move to India and be in an ashram. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, what do you have to say about this Strickland model in terms of, in the context of finding meaning? Yes, uh, I, I think we should be very cautious with this Strickland uh, model. Uh, the model uh, takes its name from a character in Somerset Mom's uh, book, The Moon and the Sixpence. And um, this uh, person, um, uh, Charles Strickland, I think uh, his life more or less follows in a very loose way the, the life of the painter Paul Gauguin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Strickland is a London uh, stockbroker, and one day he leaves his work and family completely and becomes a painter in Paris and severes all ties with his family and with uh, his previous environment. And after some time in Paris, he moves to Tahiti and continues to paint until he dies and his pictures become masterpieces. And um, this is a very influential model, a very romantic one. I think it's the secular analog of the complete mystical or religious conversion that leads one to be some kind of a born again or see the light. Yeah, And it is characterized by a few qualities. Uh, One of them is a radical break with the past, a radical break. I mean, nothing continues. Yeah. And people do not make local improvements on what they have. They do not mend, but the complete revolution. And the, another characteristic is that the change is very abrupt. It is also frequently irreversible. Hmm. And it usually focuses on one issue and it is strongly committed to, to no less than excellence. And I think that there are many disadvantages to that. Because uh, this model, this romantic model, uh, focuses on radical changes, it is highly demanding, and thus may cause some people to give up trying to change at all. It dissuades them from uh, making small or gradual changes that they could have opted for Mm. with, with a lot of gain. I very strongly believe that small changes can be huge changes. Yeah. You know, sometimes you, you change the size of your shoe only by half a number and the blisters go away and, and you stop limping. And when I started wearing glasses, that was one of those changes. Right. 
Yeah. And another disadvantage is that due to the model's commitment to, a whole, to wholesale changes, it also carries high probability of failure. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, an all-or-nothing yeah. solution, if it is a solution, with all the disadvantages of all-or-nothing. And since it is, uh, the Stuckin model is committed to radical break with the past, uh, the model is completely blind to the worth of what we already have. Yeah. And therefore, we just throw away many things that might be good, and with maybe with some amendments, or developments, we could have continued to have them, improved them, mended a few things, and life would have been good. And the abrupt, abruptness endorsed by the model does not allow us to experiment by trial and error with the new situation. You know, for example, painting four hours a week in one's hometown, uh, you just have to leave everything and go to Tahiti or, or yeah. Paris. I think also that the Strickland model is frequently based on an incorrect view of what needs to be changed. Just as when we're uh, hungry, we sometimes feel that the only thing that we want is, is to eat and we'll want to eat huge quantities of food and we'd always want to, to eat. So it might be that the person is, I know, hungry for art, let us say. This is something that interests uh, them. And um, this frequently can be satisfied with uh, smaller amounts or degrees of, of engagement with art. And uh, the radicality of the Strickland model, I think, is very dangerous. And I saw quite a few people who tried to make their not sufficiently meaningful lives more meaningful, which is good, but in that wrong way, following that over-romantic and romanticized model. I think it's much better to do it in a more moderate way with trial and error and with caution and to try to endorse the valuable and meaningful aspects that our lives already have and expand on them or add to them other sources of meaning. You talk about another important point that you notice when you're thinking about this concept of meaning for, for people And it's recognizing this gap between people's expectations and reality, that there's sort of a disconnect there, and that can create problems for assessing meaning. What do you mean by this? Well, I think that um, this is uh, somewhat related also to the notion of, of perfectionism. Some people have very high norms or expectations, and uh, I think uh, overly high uh, norms and, and expectations. And therefore, there is uh, a gap between uh, the way their lives are and the way they feel that their lives should be. Now, these gaps um, are commonplace in life, and yeah. we can do various things with them. We can try to enhance reality so it would be closer to the expectations. And we can also, in some cases, when the expectations are unrealistic, we should try perhaps to decrease or to lower our expectations to make them more realistic and plausible. And we sometimes can also live with some tension or some gaps, say that it would have been nice perhaps if things were better, but that's the way things are. And I also see the great value in what there already is. But I think that almost all people that feel that their lives are meaningless have this gap between what they take reality to be and what their expectations are. And uh, this leads to many expressions that uh, people use or maybe ways in which people describe their feeling that life is meaningless. So sometimes they, they say that the thing is that there's something wrong. And I think the wrongness has to do with this gap. I mean, life should have been this way and it is that way. And some people say that the whole thing is a farce or, or a bad joke. And uh, farces or jokes are, uh, of course, deviant from the way things should be. When I tell a joke, I, well, the joke describes things that are not the, the better way or the best way that it should be. I think this is true of many other descriptions of life's meaning. 
sometimes also people talk about a deception, a big lie, an unfulfilled promise, as if they were promised that life would be a certain way, but now it's not that way. And uh, once, that, once we understand that there is this gap, we can think about ways of either uh, enhancing reality or uh, perhaps lowering a bit uh, our expectations so they would be plausible. Yeah. Or maybe doing both at the same time, and we can also live with some gap, I think. Well, once again, you're touching upon another thing that happens quite a lot in psychotherapy huh. is recognizing that a uh, lot of people's uh, unhappiness with their lives comes from expectations that are not realistic and trying to have a person be able to bring those expectations more into a realistic realm and then figuring out ways to change things to meet those expectations or to, to come closer toward the middle. So I think that is really, really important in, um, in a psychotherapy context. Very, very interesting. Yeah. You know, this has been a really fascinating conversation and it's been great to have you on the show talking about these concepts and topics related to meaning. I'm just wondering if there's any final thoughts that you'd like to talk about or anything else on your mind to leave us with today. Maybe two things. One of them is, is I think, to be aware of, of one's uh, perfectionism when it comes to life's meaning and in general, which leads also to black and white and, and those other mistakes. Yeah. And I think that another general suggestion, which I also suggest to myself and to other people sometimes is, is that, well, don't be cruel to yourself. And I think that sometimes people are cruel to themselves when it comes to meaning in life. Maybe in, in other cases as well. We, I think, should be nice to other people and, and encouraging and good parents and good friends, but also to ourselves. So, so cruelty is usually a bad thing, one of the worst things. Yeah. And we're also persons and we shouldn't discriminate against ourselves. So we shouldn't be cruel to ourselves. And it's very important, I think, to, to remember also that. Yes, very wise words. Ido, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Aaron. I, I'm very happy to have been here and I learned quite a lot uh, from our discussion. Me too. Shalom. Shalom and kol tov. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.